there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about the field of multifamily finance, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has been in this space for over a decade and is vice president of multifamily lending. It's also known as multifamily finance at Lumet, a commercial real estate company. But before I introduce you to Ronnie Gianni, who is also the host of a wonderful podcast called Fear is a Liar, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that showcases upcoming guests on T4C, as well as features career advice, insights, and inspiration. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Ronnie Gianni, the Vice President of Multifamily Lending at Lumet, where he has worked since January 2019. Prior to joining Lumet, which was then known as Red Capital Group in New York City, Ronnie worked at Barron's Multifamily Capital, which is a mass mutual company. And his title there, was Director of Multifamily Lending. Earlier in his career, Ronnie was a Senior Associate at RBC Capital Markets, which is an investment bank, where he spent five years and started as an intern on a six-month rotation. He managed to leverage that and got promoted to being an analyst and then got promoted again to becoming the sole Senior Associate, reporting to five senior bankers. Ronnie started out in this industry as an analyst in a diversity internship program at the New York State Housing Finance Agency, working on debt issuance. And if you want to learn how to break into this industry, please check out show notes for this episode to see if Ronnie's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Ronnie, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to rock. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm just super excited because I know you have really a gift of being able to translate complex, wonky language into a really conversational story that resonates. And as the only one who has since heard this, since you and I just recorded the Espresso Shots episode, I think I'm a pretty good litmus test because the world of finance is Greek to me. So you succeeded with probably your toughest customer already, Ronnie. (laughs) That's a great start. So I did, in this introduction, even get into all the investing and personal real estate brokering that you've done on the side, beginning 
I think in like 2008, you are a super busy guy. But the truth is, you've always been busy. And because I have your resume, I can go back to the time when you were in college and I've seen how you worked full time while you attended Baruch College, the Zicklin School of Business. And I absolutely love, Ronnie, how your resume goes into detail about how you work seven days a week while you were in school, juggling three jobs, and at various points attended summer school classes, and even managed to juggle an unpaid internship. What has made you so driven? And where did you get your work ethic from? Thank you for that. It's very kind of you. I started out as a busboy. And very quickly, I learned that I'm going to have to do a lot of work and meet a lot of people and really work hard if I want options, security, a family, and, and a lifestyle that you know, could afford us enjoyment of life. So having realized that, because I see people coming in the restaurant who had that, who lived that, who embodied that, I had a vision and I just didn't let anything stop me and I still don't. Where did your work ethic come from though? So I came from humble beginnings growing up in Flushing, Queens, where my mom had two jobs between days and night shifts all over the place. And my dad delivered flowers and then eventually delivered vegetables to the local community. And then eventually delivered all sorts of things. I don't know if I mentioned flowers or whatever, and became a taxi driver. So I was surrounded by this grit and effort and drive to on how they provided for my sister and I. And then also coming from such a diverse community as it was in Flushing Queens. Everyone around you was hustling for the most part. And, and it was always this hustle and bustle that I was surrounded by. So it was the energy that I picked up on and I enjoyed. So when I was 14, I started working, making calls for stockbrokers at an investment firm in Long Island where I would take two car ride than a bus to get there because I just wanted to, I just wanted to start. And when you start really early, you adjust quicker. And I just, I just followed my parents lead, so to speak, but just in a professional way. Well, I knew I liked you already without even knowing that we both come from flushing. No way. Way. I wow. spent the first year of my life in Flushing, Queens. I did not expect you to say that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Really? 
Wow. Oh, yeah. Listen, my, my grandfather delivered milk at one point and did all kinds of blue collar jobs. And eventually my grandmother encouraged him to take the test to become a New York customs officer okay. down at the, at the docks. So that's how my mom grew up. And she was the first in her family to go to college. And I'm guessing, wow. were you the first in yours? Yeah. My, neither my mother or father went to college. Yeah. And are you first gen or did your folks grow up here? I'm first gen. So they got here in 1985. And then I was born in 86. Got it. And they emigrated from India? Yes. From Punjab uh, in India. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. And now I feel even more solidarity with you. <laughs> Great. Yeah, me too. Sure. So before we dig into what you're doing now, Ronnie, could you please give our young listeners a very quick overview of what multifamily lending is and what the various tracks are within the realm of commercial real estate? Sure. So within commercial real estate, you have all these different asset classes. So think of driving yourself in your car to your local town or local city, what have you. You're going to pass all these different asset classes of commercial real estate. So you're going to see retail, like think about Walmart, you're going to see Target, you're going to see small corner delis. So that would be retail. And then you'll see office spaces. That's another asset class. You'll see industrial, which is you can look at you know, different factories and different industrial facilities that produce items or services, etc. And then multifamily is one of them. And that's the space that I work in. And specifically multifamily, think about apartment communities, whether it be a local small apartment community with 10 to 15 apartments in it, or a luxury tower in Los Angeles or California, New York with 300 plus apartments in it in a rising luxury tower. So, so primarily what I have done is worked on loans for developers who either construct those apartment buildings or they acquire them from someone else or they need to borrow money to rehabilitate and upgrade an apartment community. Excellent. Thank you so much. So. What do you do now as vice president of multifamily lending at Lumint? Sure. So on a daily basis, it's evaluating loans, evaluating different loan proposals for developers who want to do what I just mentioned. So they either want to construct a new apartment community within a given city, or they want to purchase one, or they want to purchase one and rehabilitate it as well, because they might need a little bit of work or I might need a lot of work. It might be adding on more units. It might be adding on more buildings. All these different projects that developers, multifamily developers, apartment developers, whatever you want to call it, that they take on, they generally need to borrow some money in the form of a loan to, to, to purchase that property. And then they'll put in some money as well and or get some government funding to help for some funding in addition to that loan. So on a daily basis, I'll evaluate different loan options 
for different developers across the country. So can you break down what all your job responsibilities include? Sure. I, I, I probably can't give you all, but I'll give you a gist of I should. Uh, I should have said some yeah. because <laughs> no one can give us all, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess first thing is loan proposal comes in or something comes out called an RFT. That's called a request for proposal. So we generally get a loan request in in two ways. One, a banker has a relationship with a developer and that developer reaches out to the banker and says, hey, this is the project that I'm working on. Let me know what kind of loan proposal you can provide based on the specifics of this project. And another way that we can get a potential loan in is you'll have a developer who puts out what's called a RFP, Request for Proposals, and shares the details of a project and puts it out there for banks to bid on, so to speak. So then they will then get options from lenders like us who say, hey, we believe we can do these sorts of loans or this specific loan for you at these terms. And generally then the developer can go over those proposals that were submitted and pick the best one, so to speak. And so it's either, like you said, on a daily basis, it's evaluating the loans from bankers or yourself that you bring in from a relationship or looking at different RFPs that are out there where we can bid on a loan and give our best foot forward on what favorable financing we can provide to that developer. Got it. So would you say that most days, Ronnie, you've got your head buried in spreadsheets? I would say so, yes, because it's not only, it's so many different things you're analyzing on a daily basis, but to give you a little more detail, it's analyzing the development budget for the developer. It's then analyzing what sorts of rents the developer expects to receive and if they're in line with other comparable properties within that area. And then it's also analyzing which loan products would that particular project fit in and where the current interest rates are and where the current favorable terms are for those sorts of products. So looking at one project and then breaking it into like ten, five to 10 buckets of analyzing what works for this sort of a loan for that caliber of a developer. When I say caliber of a developer, I mean, do they own 500 apartments right now or do they own 10,000 within their portfolio? Okay. So prior to working at Lument, you spent three years at Barron's Multifamily Capital, which is a mass mutual company. And you've actually been working at Acre Capital, which was acquired by Barings Multifamily Capital. And at that point, your title was Director of Multifamily Lending. How is the role of a director different from being a vice president in terms of your responsibilities? So I would say the the role didn't really shift very differently. It's just each company decides to handle their 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 titles differently, and so. Honestly, my, my duties and my roles and responsibilities didn't really change much. It's just how they went, went about using their titles. So I still analyzed multifamily loans on a daily basis, just as I do now. And 
made the effort to build relationships with developers directly so I could potentially bring in business myself. So that goes hand in hand with what I did at Bearings and what I'm doing now. Okay. I think that's such a great point because especially when someone is starting out in the quote unquote real world, but frankly, throughout their career, especially if you're pivoting into different industries, you can get really thrown by job titles. And the really important thing for our listeners to take away from this is that job titles are made up by different companies. They just decide what job titles to use. So don't think it's you if you don't understand what it means. It's probably because that company is using some funky titles. And it's just a good idea to have a range of titles within a job function that you're searching for. Yes. And I will also say this for for students and young professionals is that I always had this notion that that's a very traditional notion that I think society kind of builds around us that you have to always work up the ranks, quote unquote, to go from analyst to associate to VP to director to managing director to senior managing director, and that you have to, quote unquote, put in your time to get there. And you have to work the 90 hour weeks and give your life to it. But what I learned, which is very, very simple and straightforward, is if you bring the most value, it doesn't matter how many years you work there. It doesn't matter if you were a director at a previous firm or the current firm. It doesn't matter if you're three years in versus nine years in. If you're bringing value, you can become the managing director as quickly as possible. It's not about the time spent. It's about the value added. And I'll give you an example. So right now, I could be working on five loans for five senior bankers who all have relationships with different clients who came to them for that loan, right? Mm -hmm. If I figured out a way to one way, shape, or form, go to networking events, make connections on LinkedIn, reach out to developers directly, find people who know developers that I know, and I brought in 10 deals over the next 365 days, I will get that managing director title and everything I've done in the past is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Where I worked, what title I had, what GPA I had, where I graduated from, whether I got that that master's degree, whether I'm going for that master's all of that, believe it or not, in my view, it's irrelevant. It's the amount of business I'm bringing in that will then define my title. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. In fact, I would go so far as to say your GPA only matters if you want to go to grad school. And perhaps in your world, Ronnie, especially with an entry-level candidate, you care about GPA. But I would say most industries could care less. Absolutely. It's all about when you get your foot in the door that you provide that value, not what your GPA was. Yeah. So before joining ACE, or excuse me, before joining Acre, 
You spent five years at RBC Capital Markets in investment banking. And I just love this. You totally crushed it. You worked your way up the ladder. You started as an intern with a six-month internship. How did you leverage that internship to get hired as an analyst and then get promoted again to becoming the sole senior associate? What did you do as an intern, Roddy? So I was graduating on or around the crisis, the financial crisis. So it was probably one of the hardest times to get either even an internship, but let alone an analyst position at an investment bank. So this was 2009, just for our listeners. Yeah, it was really, really, really hard. Not only were there no jobs for the most part, but a lot of people who got jobs that I knew in my university were getting their offers rescinded, which means that they got the offer, they accepted it while being a junior in college, they're expecting to graduate, and they have this job lined up in an investment bank, earning a great salary or expect to be, and they were getting letters saying their offer's been rescinded because we no longer have the need. So I must have got maybe, I don't know, 45, 50, 60 rejections from these different various banks and and different financial institutions where either I applied for an internship and or analyst position trying to come out of college. And it just wasn't working out, but I was still working at the restaurant, still, still bartending, still trying to figure out what's going to be next. And I found the New York State Housing Finance Agency, a governmental body. They had a diversity internship program where you literally earn like $20,000 a year, which I mean, by all standards in finance, it's very low. Not to say it's, it's low. I'm just saying by the standards of a career in finance or starting out in finance is probably, I don't know, maybe... 60 to 80% less than what you would expect. And it was six, you would do six months at the New York City Housing Finance Agency, and then they would place you six months with an investment banking partner. I read that in the fine print, whereas I feel most people just glossed over that opportunity. A, it's a New York State Housing Finance Agency, and then B, you're going to earn, you know, Twenty thousand pounds in a year, which after taxes you'll probably end up with I don't know thirteen or fourteen thousand. And I said, "Well, this is not something I'm necessarily excited about, but I see through the through through the silver lining here that I could potentially end up at an investment bank and one of the top investment banks." So I went on LinkedIn. I and this LinkedIn was super early back then. I tried to figure out who had been in that program so I can make contact, make connections, ask questions, and best prepare. Did that, got in contact with a junior analyst at the housing finance agency who ended up going to, I think, JP Morgan or something. Met him up for lunch because I just harassed him and said, I really (laughs) need to speak to you and I really need to meet with you. I'll buy you lunch. And I'm working on paid internship, working at the bar at night, jumping from the city to Long Island. It was crazy. And prepared, and after meeting with eight bankers in a room and four New York State officials, some way, somehow, I got into the program. And when I got in, 
I was like, oh my God, now I have to stay in and I have to make sure that they place me with a good bank and then I get to keep that job from there on out. So I did six months at the HFA, then went to, I was placed with Royal Bank of Canada, RBC Capital Markets, their investment banking division. And from the day I stepped in that door, I would introduce myself personally to anyone I walked past and make sure they all knew my name and make sure if anyone needs help with something that they let me know because that's what I'm here for and started garnering relationships and doing whatever it took to show them that I'm here and I'm committed and I'm, I'm very much hoping and expecting to get an analyst position coming out of six months out of this internship program and making sure my managers knew, making sure their managers knew, and making sure that I was in tune with what I needed to do to get there. And that's how it all started. And were you working all kinds of crazy hours? So it was pretty long hours, I would say, uh, in the beginning, probably about 12 hours a day or something like that, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Some work on the weekends. It was not like boiler room style or anything crazy like that, which I know a lot of people out there have those horror stories. Unfortunate. They were, they were pretty balanced. They were pretty fair. And it was actually really good banking, good people to work for, and a great place for me to start learning early on what it's going to take to have this career in investment banking and finance. And I, I stayed there for five to six years, working myself up each rank and learned a lot and made a lot of connections. And, and believe it or not, when I went to Barings then and then made future jumps, it was with a banker I worked with at RBC Capital Markets, one of the bankers I supported for about five years. He was making the leap to go into the multifamily lending, which we touched on, but it wasn't specifically our product. And he asked me to join him. And there was a huge promotion going from the role at RBC to then Acre slash Barings. And Acre being, that time it was a subsidiary of Aries. And Aries is one of the largest and most reputable and well sought after private equity firms in the world. So it was quite the experience to be able to be even a part of a small company that's a part of that larger company. And then I kind of stayed with him throughout that time as we shifted firms. Oh, I love that. I was going to ask you why you ended up leaving investment banking. And now that totally makes sense. So Ronnie, what advice do you have for our young listeners, especially those who are still in college? about how they can impress their supervisors during an internship? I think it comes back to a couple of things we touched on previously, but really it's being proactive and, and taking those steps to truly show you're proactive. So if you, so I'll give you an example. Having the initiative to, when you get a project, and let's say, let's say whatever the project is, I'll give you an example on multifamily. You have a couple of loan products that might fit a developer's loan proposal for their project, right? So you might be asked, can you evaluate this loan product for this loan? If you know that potentially it can go with a couple of other loan products, maybe if you have the time and you can figure out a way that instead of just evaluating one loan product, you can actually figure out how to show them, well, if you looked at these other two products, this is what it would look like as well without being asked 
to look at those other loan products. Does that, does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. ha- it's not always in the ask of what can I do for you. It's finding what you can do for them to provide them more value without yes. them always having to tell you. Because quite honestly, I think managers can find it to be cumbersome if you ask too much when you could really probably in short order within a couple of weeks, start figuring out what their pain points are and what could provide value to them with that being one example. So Ronnie, let's talk about your podcast. Fear is a liar. You launched it in November of 2020. So big congratulations. Thank you. Why did you want to create it? And why is fear a liar? So I I was really inspired to learn more about fear, the subject itself, and more specifically how people have dealt with fear, embraced fear, and used it to their advantage rather than against them. And so that's how I picked the subject matter. And what I really wanted to do is not only learn myself from other successful individuals, but I wanted to share that message and have a positive impact on others. So that's what inspired me to start the podcast. And why do I feel fear is a liar? Because everything that I have been generally afraid of in my career and my personal life and all these different goals that I've had the opportunity and blessing to achieve, they all had some form of fear in front of them. And there was one way, shape, or form I got through it. So I truly feel that fear is something we create and it's a liar. It's such an awesome concept. I absolutely love it. What would you say has been, uh, maybe if there's been one big takeaway that you've learned as to how our young listeners can kind of get mind over matter in terms of conquering their fears? So. I could say from my experience, my personal experience and what I'm learning from others on this subject is if you just start and take steps towards whatever that thing is you're afraid of, the fear will lessen. It won't go away, but it will lessen. And the more steps you take towards it and the more action you take, you'll learn that it's definitely not as scary as you thought it was. So perfect example is you see this big job opportunity that you definitely want to go for, but you start thinking about all the obstacles, all the challenges, all the networking that you capabilities that you don't have, the people you don't know, conversations you would have to potentially have to get there. Rather than if you flipped it and you said, okay, I'm going to contact five people a day that will lead me towards this position. And I'm going to continue to research people and contacts that have touch points to this position that will potentially lead me to conversations to learn more about how I'm going to get there and doing that every single day rather than getting swallowed by the different hesitations and fears that go on in your mind about that specific job or role or opportunity or industry or project or task or or asking someone to be a mentor. I love so much about that answer, Ronnie, because what you've done is you've broken it down into 
bite-sized, actionable pieces. And it really is about just taking steps in the general direction of where you want to go. And I truly believe that fear, you can look at it as, oh my God, like fear, sort of the saber-toothed tiger is going to eat me. Or you could look at the flip side, which is if you are feeling fear, that's also excitement. Yes, it, it's, it is the sign of growth in true form. Yes. So, Ronnie, let's flash back really quickly to when you were at Baruch at the Zicklin School of Business. You were majoring in business administration with a focus on finance and investments. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I had no idea what I was going to do with it. All I knew is I wanted a job in finance and I wanted to make money, to be frank. <laughs> that was my goal. And I basically went to the Career Development Center and I soaked up the resources that they had, the counselors that they have, and just started making contacts with students who are getting internships, getting analyst positions to say, hey, can I just look at your resume? Can I just ask you a few questions of how you got there? Who did you use to get advice to make this resume? Do you mind if I maybe borrow the format of your resume? Do you mind if I speak to someone you're working with at your internship? So it's just constantly asking, asking, asking. And the more you ask, the more you're going to get. And it's not always going to come quickly. How long did it take you before you got that first internship? So actually, what you seek, seeks you. And it mostly doesn't come in the form you expect it. So I was hustling at 11 p.m. at the bar when I was still a busboy at that time and working myself to becoming a server. And I had met this gentleman who would come late at night with his wife from the city to their summer home or something like that out in the Hamptons and always stop by to eat with us at the bar. And I always helped him get a table. I always helped him get seats, drinks, etc. And he took a liking to me and I had, I had no motive or anything within that. And within a month or two, he asked me, Hey, so Ronnie, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm working hard at the bar. <laughs> he goes, no, I mean outside of this. And I said, well, I'm actually going to school full time while doing this at Peru College. And I'm looking to get an internship in finance right now. And it's so hard. I mean, I've even applied to unpaid internships and I can't get them. And he said, call me on Monday and speak to her name was Janice. I'll never forget. And I called Janice and she said, hey, so your unpaid internship starts at Penn Plaza on June 15th, whatever year that was. And I was like, what? She goes, yeah, start on June 15th. Send me a copy of your ID. And that's how my unpaid internship started. Not the connections I made, not the people I was asking, none of that stuff. But at the end of the day, in my view, it was the energy. It was the seeking. It was the ask. It was, the, it, it was what I was putting out that came back to me rather than potentially sitting there and sulking over how there's no opportunity at the moment. So we not only have Flushing Queens in common, Ronnie, 
we also have a deep belief in the power of positivity. I am a thousand percent in your corner. I totally agree, but I would add something. And that is the fact that you were bringing your A game to your work as a busboy every time you showed up for work and you so impressed this man that he Mm -hmm. wanted to learn more about you. I believe so. I believe so because we had never, you know, we had always said hello. We always had the general formalities, but we had never touched on what I was doing outside of that one conversation after he had maybe met me five or six times. What you put out there gets noticed. It doesn't always get noticed right away, but over time it does. And so where was that unpaid internship that you got? It was at Citibank and it was in their wealth management division in Penn Plaza. And I just couldn't tell you how excited I was, not only just for the opportunity, but how this all played out in that I was doing two to three jobs and going to school and doing this internship. And it just so happened the office was at Penn Plaza, 34th Street in Manhattan on 7th Avenue, right beside Madison Square Garden. And the location couldn't be better for me to keep up and keep that internship while also working the bar and also going to school and also being a bartender on the Long Island Railroad because it was such a central location for me to go and pop in and do my internship and then also hop out to brew, hop out to the bar, and then literally go downstairs, hop on the train, take it to Jamaica Station, and work on Fridays on the Cannonball Line where I served individuals going to their summer homes in the Hamptons every Friday for that summer that I did that. It like, I I don't know how it all interconnected so well, but if that location wasn't where it was, there's no way I could have done all of it. I totally have chills. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. Like it just, I, I just don't know, like, I just kept going. I just kept going. I didn't think about what was really happening. I just kept going, kept going, and kept going. And then it led to that housing finance agency internship program. And then that led to RBC. And and I just started realizing the more I put myself out there, the more I work hard, the more I build relationships, the more I take those steps, take that action. Because like you said, that positivity is key, but that positivity without action it doesn't have enough force to get you where you want to go. The key there is after that positivity, with that positivity, is taking that action, taking those steps, even if it doesn't come in your favor all the time. Beautiful, beautiful. Two final questions, Ron. And these are questions I try to ask all time for coffee guests. If you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, and, and by struggle, I mean, maybe you failed at something. Maybe you got fired. Maybe you really screwed up something. But the most important thing here in this story isn't the failure, but rather how you persevered and whether there was a lesson that you took away from that experience. So I can, with that, I can touch on Outside of my day job over the past 10 years, I started a couple of small businesses 
that have really transformed a lot of different things, uh, my skill set, my experiences. And that is that about 10 years ago, a little bit over 10, I started opening up small convenience stores for small business operators where I basically helped them through the application process through five to six different government municipalities. And then I helped family members do it as well. And I literally think I failed at 70 plus applications before I got an actual approval. And I remember after failing at maybe 40 to 50 applications, I was so discouraged. I was so beat up. I was so annoyed until one day a light bulb went off and I said, you know, what I learned that didn't work in those 40, 50, 60 applications thus far is knowledge that is now gold going forward should I pursue this business for myself, for my family, and for others. And I started writing down and jotting down each failure notice I received, what the reasoning was. And that became my bank of knowledge that I was planning on cashing in on in the future. And I did in some way, shape, or form. I've either been a seed investor or partner or advisor or representative for maybe, I don't know, 20 to 30 to 50 locations now, of which 12 I've played a key role in now that are all located across Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. And what was the big takeaway, the lesson? The lesson was that I wasn't failing. I was learning. It wasn't working yet. Those were the lessons. Oh my God. (laughs) When I was a journalist, Ronnie, in my first career, that would have been like the money soundbite right there. That would have been like, oh my God, that's the little bells in my head are going off. Amazing, amazing advice. Final question. If you could go back to Baruch and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would say take on more you can handle. That says a lot coming from the guy who was working full time seven days a week while he was in school. Yeah, you know, even though I did that, I feel like now when you like having the blessing and opportunity to have a family, children, wife, a home, I mean, I'm just so blessed beyond belief. I have more than I deserve. And I truly feel that. And I go through my gratitude daily and try to remind myself to ground myself. And I still feel that when you're, you have your youth, you have your health, you have your energy, there is literally nothing that can stop you. Literally nothing if you put your mind to it. And even as you grow, but life's responsibilities make it more challenging where there is more limited time. There is still other limits that will get in your way that you don't have in your, let's say, teenage years or 20s or even early 30s. So even though I was doing all that, I still feel I would tell myself, take on more, you can handle it because I I truly feel we all can if we choose to take that route. What incredible insights. I recently dropped an episode, actually the whole episode and then smaller clips 
with a guest who is an expert on speed reading and optimizing your brain. And he, when he was a kid, was known as the kid with the broken brain and he couldn't read and couldn't learn. And he ended up fixing his brain. And he said, if you just save one hour a day times 365 for the number of days in the year, that adds up to nine weeks. Nine weeks if you're looking at a 40-hour week. Just saving one hour a day. Ronnie is the host of the Fear is a Liar podcast. You can find him at RonnieGiani.com. That's Ronnie, R-O-N-N-I-E, G-Y-A-N-I, Ronnie. You are such an extraordinary young man. Not only do you deserve every good thing that's ever happened, but I wish you much, much more success in the months and years to come. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. And it, it really, it's been a great opportunity to be here. I really appreciate you having me and all the kind words. And I learned a lot from you as well. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.